All right, hello everybody. Welcome back to another episode of uh, the Heart of Flesh podcast. Thank you for joining us. Uh, if you've been with us so far, um, we have been going through a series discussing the doctrines of grace, otherwise known as the five points of Calvinism often, uh, otherwise designated with the acronym TULIP. And right now we are on uh, unconditional election. If you haven't, if you're just tuning into this one, I would encourage you to go back and and listen to some of the podcasts that preceded this one. Uh, hopefully that will, you know, we're, we're meaning to kind of push this along in a, in a linear kind of logical uh, sequence yeah, of thought. Blocks. Yeah, building blocks. So we're kind of adding things on top of each other. And now, hopefully, as we've said this before, much of our goal and purpose in doing this is that this would really provoke deep thought in, in anyone who's listening that it would push you to read the Bible and have these questions in mind, and that it would give you a higher view of God. And, and sometimes that may even include uh, difficulty reconciling certain things together. You know, we talk a lot about God's sovereignty, human responsibility, how those things can work together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that may even lead you to a place of, you know, it may feel like you want to just throw your hands up in the air and <laughs> say, I can't understand this. And that's okay. But hopefully, this is pushing your view of God outside of uh, you know the the small philosophical box that we really want to put God in. Yeah. And I think, especially in our culture, you know, especially if we think about just the world in general, after the influence of the Enlightenment, there's been this tendency to really exalt man and the sovereignty of man, and kind of diminish our view of God. And in the Scriptures, we find the opposite of that. Yep. Like we, we find it's gonna be an exciting episode. <laughs> it is, yeah. We find a God who is sovereign over all of his creation, sovereign over nature, sovereign over 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 people, sovereign over nations. Yep. And you know, just to start this episode, I wanted to just give a quick survey of that. So I'm gonna read a couple passages and I want you to think deeply about what the scriptures are saying about God here. Yeah. And I want you to consider your own view of God and to see if these match. Yeah, maybe define sovereignty before sure. we even go. Because this is such a big part of this conversation and unconditional election. Yeah. Um, and kind of what you were saying, Hank is, Oh, by the way, I'm going to be calling him Hank. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so his name is Jackson Hanky. Obviously most of you guys know that. So his nickname for the last five years that I've known him has been Hank. So I'm just going to be calling him Hank if that's yeah. all right. Similar to when I call UK is normally. Yeah. yeah. So in the future, if I call him Hank, that's his name. So what I was saying is, uh, so we're talking about sovereignty. Now I kind of lost my train of thought. But yeah, talking about sovereignty. Sovereignty is going to be a glorious podcast. Exciting. Hank's going to be passionate today. <laughs> and uh, just over the last, I mean, the more and more you study the Bible, the more and more uh, you spend time in God's word, the grander, the more majestic, the more awesome picture of God that you get. Um, and the less we do that, the smaller uh, view of God we have, we try to fit him in a box. And so the reason I'm so excited about this podcast today is, one, we're talking about unconditional election, but how that plays into God's sovereignty and just how beautiful and big God is. So mm-hmm. back to you on sovereignty. Define okay. it, and then we'll go through these passages. All right. Well, an, an, uh, just off the top of my head definition, when I think of God's sovereignty, one, the Bible puts forth God as having the right and authority to exercise his will in all of his creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of verses like Psalm 115, 3. Um, it says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Uh, I think there's one 
Mm. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go through. I got a couple listed here. Yeah, I mean, God um, is in full control. So, so God doesn't just possess the right to act sovereignly in His creation, but He exercises that right in His sovereignty mm-hmm. and His providence. So, I'm gonna read from a couple passages that just demonstrate this. I want, I want us to have this view of God in our minds. Mm-hmm. So, Isaiah 46, nine and ten it says this: I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Later in the verse, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God, God is in control of, of all things. Listen to Lamentation 337 to 38. This question, rhetorical question, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Mm. Think about that. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Now, there is oftentimes that we look at the world and we can wonder. We, we, see, uh, we see pain. We see difficulty. We mm. see things that it's, it's hard for us to reconcile with a good and sovereign God. And it's important that we have a right view of that. Um, it's important that we understand that there, there, is, there is nothing that has come to pass that is outside of God's purpose, and there is nothing that God is not ultimately using for His glory and for the good of His people. Mm-hmm. Even in the midst of, 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 of suffering and the evil actions of human beings, God is, is ultimately providentially in control and working all things for His glory and for the good of His people. And that's a truth we just need to accept. Amen. If you think about, I mean, one, one great illustration of this in the Bible is, is the book of Job. Mm-hmm. You know, we see, we see Job um, presented to us basically as this righteous sufferer. And, you know, the question in, or, or one of the amazing statements of Job after, after he loses all that he has, his wife comes to him uh, and says, why would you not curse God mm-hmm. and die? Basically is what she says. Um, and Job answers back with this rhetorical question. Uh, he says, should we accept good from God and not evil also? And Job recognizes that ultimately all things happen according to God's will. And, and in Job's situation, it didn't surprise God. It didn't catch God off guard. Uh, the, the emphasis in the narrative is that God allowed Satan to come and, and bring destruction on Job. Uh, but Job knows ultimately that God is in control and that God is sovereign. And that is Job's response. Um, he also says, you know, in, in, in chapter one, he says, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I think a, a prayer for us as we wrestle through the idea of God's sovereignty, as we think about those things, um, would be that we would have that response of Job mm-hmm. uh, and know that even in our even in our suffering, and the New Testament really expands on this, but even in our suffering, God is working things out for our good. Mm-hmm. And he is producing us in, in us a character that reflects the character of him and the life of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So even, even as we walk through this life, um, even as we face difficult things, we can trust in a sovereign and good God who loves us, cares for us, and is working all things for our good and his glory. Yeah. So what, what Jackson's trying to do is he's walking through these scriptures. I just called you Jackson. Hey, <laughs> yeah. You're confusing people. Yeah. Interchangeably. Yeah. He, trying to paint a picture of God's full sovereignty. We don't just say that God is sovereign over what is good. 
but God is sovereign over what is good and evil. He has full control over his creation, um, his people, um, and his will is going to be done here on earth. And how that relates then to unconditional election um, is, is kind of what we're trying to paint this picture and draw out. And we'll get more into the application and um, the other stuff later on. I've, I have a sneaky suspicion that this podcast is is going to maybe turn into two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could, We have a lot of material here. And we're shooting for 45 minutes this time. So um, are you going to read that Daniel passage? I do. I want to okay. read that one. I love it. Um, if you're familiar with Daniel as well, this is another example. So King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon at the time, this is around 600 BC. Uh, at the time, Babylon is this great kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar is very proud. God comes and humbles him greatly. It's a wonderful story. You should read it. But Nebuchadnezzar, in his response at the end of all of this, says this about God. It says, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Mm, and I want to just emphasize in, in this discussion as well, and I think this passage highlights this, and when we, we're going to talk about Romans 9 later, it's also highlighted there, but us, us as human beings have a limited perspective. Mm-hmm. We have limited knowledge. We have limited wisdom. And God is in an entirely different category to us. So, and what Nebuchadnezzar is saying here is, is there, there are n- none that can stay the hand of God and none that can say to him, what have you done? Mm-hmm. So we actually are not in a place to question or to, to bring suit against God, mm-hmm. against his righteousness, against his justice. We may struggle uh, to understand it, but we are not in a, in a place to question uh, in a wrong way the doings and, and the will of God. Mm-hmm. We come from a place of limited knowledge, limited perspective, limited wisdom. God is infinite in wisdom. He's infinite in knowledge, and he has an infinitely perfect perspective. To say that God is infinite in knowledge means he knows all things. To say that he is infinitely wise means that he always does and acts according to what is right, mm-hmm. uh, according to the best possible outcome. And God does that from a place. So, so when God decrees and acts sovereignly in things, he does it from a place of his ultimate wisdom, knowing what is best. You know, Tim Keller has a really good quote that I think is is. is really thought provoking, but he says, if you knew all the things that God does, then you would, you would do exactly what God has ordained. Like even in your own life, if you had the perspective and the knowledge and the wisdom of God to, oh, oh, to direct your life, you wouldn't ask for anything different than what God gives you. Mm. So often our, 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 our struggles come from a, a, the lack of knowledge, the lack of wisdom and the lack of perspective that, that we have in comparison to God. Mm-hmm. So I, I hope that, uh, I mean, that, that, that gives you a better picture of God, which is important when we're, when we're just discussing this. Um, and I hope as we continue that it's going to expand your view of God. And we're going to try to keep building on these two truths, that God is both absolutely sovereign over all things, and yet the Bible is abundantly clear that human beings are absolutely responsible for all that we do that God never treats us as robots or puppets, but rather that we are always regarded uh, as beings made in his image and as moral creatures, mm-hmm. morally responsible creatures, and as volitional creatures. 
meaning that um, God's sovereignty does not eliminate our ability to choose according to our will um, or our ability to choose according to our nature. Now, a Calvinist, and we discussed this in Total Depravity, but a Calvinist does not deny that human beings have wills and are able to act according to them. But what the Calvinist is really emphasizing and what the Bible emphasizes is that the will of man has been corrupted by sin. Not that men cannot will or choose, but that man's choices come from a sinful nature mm-hmm. that all of us possess. And further, we, we, we do stress greatly, as the Bible does, that God ultimately is sovereign. And we, we wrestle with these two things. Uh, we struggle to understand how both of them are true. But at the end of the day, we affirm them and we praise God for them. Yeah. And, and we need to affirm them. They're, they're in the Bible, we believe. And like kind of what you were saying earlier, Hank, just how like sometimes we get to these what seem like paradoxical things and we see them both in the scriptures and all we can do is say is like, yes, they're both true. Mm-hmm. God is fully sovereign, yet humans are responsible. And how those two things mesh together is really hard to understand. Yeah. yeah, I'm thinking about the conversation we had earlier this week. Uh, you know, James and I are in RCI together, but James was asking this question, kind of hinting at this same reality. He asked the question, who killed Jesus? And that, that's a good question. And I think there's actually multiple answers to that. My first response to James was to say that I did. Yeah. <laughs> and it was my Rightfully sin. So. <laughs> and it was my sin that nailed him to the cross. Uh, but we, we could say that's a true answer. Now, we could also say that uh, the Jews uh, of his day, Pilate, we, we, we could say that they killed Jesus and we would be right to say so. Yeah. They were the ones who killed Jesus. You could also say, ultimately, that God was the cause of this. If you read Isaiah 53, 12, it says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Mm-hmm. He put him to grief. Uh, if you read Acts 2, it says Jesus was delivered up according to the according to the predetermined plan of God and he was nailed to the cross by wicked men. And so so when we say that question, there's multiple answers and, and both of them are true. Yeah, similar to like, uh, Hank, who wrote Romans? Yeah, that's a good. I mean, who wrote the Bible? Yeah. Well, Paul wrote Paul wrote Romans. We can yeah. see Paul's personality in Romans. We we see that Paul was not manipulated or coerced in his writing. So it would be one thing to say that, and you'd be accurate to say that Paul wrote Romans. But a deeper and, and further answer to that question, ultimately, who is the author of Romans? God. Yeah. Ultimately, Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit. We say that that God is the author of Romans. That it's His Word. Yeah. So. In that the point we're making is this: there's other paradoxical things that that come up, and the and the reason that they seem paradoxical to us is because we're finite, we're limited in our knowledge, we are not like God, yeah. and pr- praise God for that reality <laughs> that that God is not like us, that He's above us, that He's smarter than us, that He knows more than us, He's wiser than us, and that He is in control, and like. I think oftentimes we need to think about the flip side of the coin of if God is not fully sovereign, mm-hmm. what does that mean? So if God's not fully in control, what implications could that have? Yeah. And so like one of them that comes to mind is like evil. Like if God's not fully sovereign over evil and the wicked actions of man, what hope do we have that God's going to overcome it eventually? Yeah. And that that's scary. Yeah, it's an excellent point. We're 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 faced with this reality that that evil exists, mm-hmm. and you know we're we're putting we're putting forth the idea that one that God God ordains and decrees all things, God allows evil evil things to happen, um, 
but yet God is ultimately in control of all those things. Yeah. He's not responsible for it. Yep. He, he doesn't sin. He doesn't do any wrong, but he has control over it. Now, imagine a world where evil is outside the, the sovereign control purview of God. Of God. Yeah. Imagine a world where, where, where God actually is impotent against the forces of evil to stop them and overcome them. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, imagine a world like that. What assurance do we have of, uh, of anything that God, God says? And the Bible is filled with God saying things that will in the future come to pass. And what assurance could we have if God were not in control of all things? Yeah, I mean, all, the whole Christian faith is, is seeing these promises of God, the promises in Christ that by faith we can have forgiveness of sins in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. God has made that promise and we're, we're trusting in it by faith, which is a gift from God. And if God doesn't have the control, full control to make it come to pass, our faith and our hope is in vain. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of, of the Christian faith is, is God, he keeps his promises. How? Because he's in full control and he cannot lie. And that gives us assurance of that God will dominate over evil over the course of time and, and will eventually crush it in the final blow. And there will be no more wickedness. There'll be no more brokenness, no more sin in the new creation. And, that we can have an assurance of the promises of God. We can have an assurance of our salvation. Yeah. And even, I think even so much with our, with our question of evil, like the Bible holds out this wonderful promise Mm -hmm. that even as we see evil, evil around us today, and even at times when it seems to be prospering, that God is going to deal perfectly and justly and rightly with all evil. Mm -hmm. So even, even now, as we see things that are hard to understand, hard to, hard to explain, we know that in the end, God is going to make all wrongs right. God, God is going to right all wrongs. Mm-hmm. And he's going to bring perfect justice against all wickedness, sin, and evil. Now, what makes that scary is our own wickedness, mm-hmm. sin, and evil. But, of course, as we, we think about the gospel, that's why it's such good news to us. Yep. Uh, okay, now we ramble a little bit. I'm going to make one more point before we get into some of these objections. Okay. The Bible presents the sovereignty of God as a major comfort for the, for the believer. Mm-hmm. Jesus in the Gospels in Matthew 6, I think in Luke 12, he talks about it as well. He talks about anxiety. And oh boy, do we have a problem in America with anxiety. And for a lot of people, we are worried about so many things. And yet, Jesus holds forth to us a absolutely sovereign God. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without his knowing. He numbers all the hairs on our head. And Psalm 39, Psalm 139, another wonderful example of God's the comfort of God's sovereignty um, that, that in his book are written all of our days. And I just want you to consider having a view of God's sovereignty, especially if you're someone that struggles with anxiety, which all of us do on some level, some more than others, but this is put forth in the Bible as a cure to worry, as a cure to anxiety, uh, as a remedy, which puts forth a loving, good, sovereign God who is worthy of all of our trust and it was in absolute control mm-hmm. of all things. Even the smallest details like the hairs on your head. The molecules floating around in the room. Yep. Crazy. All of them. Okay, before we get into the objections, <laughs> no, this has to do with it. I'm okay. just going to lay out like the doctrine. Um, I have a quote from R.C. Sproul, just like what is unconditional election. Okay. So that way we have that before we look into these objections. Um, so Dr. R.C. Sproul, um, famous theologian. Um, defines unconditional election um, in this way. The reformed view of election, known as unconditional election, means that God does not foresee an action or condition 
on our part that induces him to save us. Rather, election rests on God's sovereign decision to save, save whomever he pleased to save. Amen. So, and if you're, I mean, if, if you're looking for some more biblical evidence of that, we covered a lot of that in our last episode, yeah. and now we're kind of trying to move on to some of these objections. Now, the, the place to go when it's talking about election, uh, talking about election and, and objections to it is everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, for, there, there's a lot of objections to this that are that are put forth. Um, but Romans chapter nine, and we see the Apostle Paul, uh, even posing to his own doctrine some some hypothetical objections, and I th- he, and I he gives. I thought you were talking about the, the evidence for it. That's why I said everywhere. Oh, okay. You, you were. Talking I was about talking the objections. about the objections. Okay. Yeah. No, yeah. They're, no. <laughs> yeah. Unconditional well, elections everywhere in the Bible. Yeah, it is. Thanks for the, clarifying. The objections are also everywhere yeah there's 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 a lot of objections posed against it we're going to try to deal with some of the most common ones and especially uh the ones that paul is dealing with in in romans 9 and i encourage you to go and read this on your own as well now one thing to note before we do that um it is important actually to think of the fact that paul is answering these objections for example so so that that gives you some insight paul's going around teaching and what's really likely is that these are objections that people are, are putting forth against his doctrine. Mm-hmm. So that that's telling for us as well as to what Paul's doctrine actually is, as well as how he answers them. Yeah, and as well as the the same questions and quibbles that we have today about the doctrine of unconditional election were the same things that were happening 2,000 years ago when Paul was introducing this doctrine. Yep. Yeah, it, it, not, not much has really changed in the grand scheme of things. So I'm going to read. Um, Where are you starting here? You know what? I might just... Uh, let's see. I'm going to start in um, Romans 9. Let's just start in verse 6 and we'll keep going. Okay. Just to, just to recover uh, some of where we've been. So verse 6, Paul's talking about the fact that there are Israelites who have not believed in Jesus. Um and he says, well, it really calls into question the faithfulness and the promises of God. And he's defending God's faithfulness and God's fulfilling of his promises. He says, verse 6, It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's a quote from Genesis. Uh, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then here comes the objection. So after Paul lays out um, his doctrine of, of, of unconditional election, verse 14 brings the most common objection to that. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? So, so Paul has laid out this idea that uh, before Jacob and Esau were born, God chose for the salvific promises that he gave to Abraham to be carried on through Jacob and not through Esau. And this was not in with respect to the um, foreknowledge of some faith or some righteousness in Jacob or Esau, uh, but it was according to God's purpose of election. 
And um, yeah, as Paul says, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So the idea being, and, and, and this, this is, is pertaining not just to Jacob and Esau, but Paul is giving kind of a, a robust view of salvation and the way it happens in general. Um, and he says that, that Jacob was chosen and Esau was not. Esau was, was passed over. And as we read Genesis, God declares that from beforehand, mm-hmm. and that is what comes to pass. And it comes to pass through a remarkable series of circumstances, and certainly uh, there was no robotic manipulation of Jacob or Esau, but God accomplished his purposes through the volitional activity of these creatures. But God declared it beforehand. Um, God's electing purposes were put on Jacob. So here's the question. If God elects some and God does not elect others to salvation, verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is there unrighteousness with God, basically? Has God acted rightly in this situation? And here's Paul's answer. Paul's answer to that is, and and it has exclamation point in your Bible, likely he says, by no means, because what Paul does is he uses the strongest negative uh, Greek construction that, that there is in the language to emphasize that there, there is not, in, in all of this, there is no injustice on God's part. Mm-hmm. The idea of injustice or, or unrighteousness or God acting wrongly in some way to Paul is unthinkable and impossible. It's inconsistent with God's character. And at, at the very same time, we see that God chooses Jacob and he passes over Esau. And just to bring, I mean, I'm just, I just want to bring some, some clarity to the situation. So if the Bible talks about election of certain individuals to salvation, that's usually not the, the problem that people have. The problem is the flip side of that coin. So if election is God's sovereign choosing of some for salvation, that it implies, on the other hand, the flip side of that coin, that, that there are others who are not chosen for salvation. Mm-hmm. And now some have used this the term in history to describe this, uh, calling it double predestination. And I don't think that's really a helpful term. Um, and the reason why is because I think that it it implies that God acts in the same way in each case towards the elect and towards the non-elect. And that's that's not what we see in the Bible. On the one hand, in election, God is seen as... Uh, well, the, the active ultimate cause, he, he, out of his sovereign grace, he is actively bringing about the salvation of an undeserving sinner, right? And on the flip side of that coin, uh, when it comes to the non-elect, God, it, the Bible's emphasis is this, that God leaves sinners in their rebellion, does not sovereignly act to call them out of their sin, and ultimately brings against them the justice that is due for their sin. So you see in there that there is no injustice. All are sinners, and yet God pours out his grace on on some, and on others God brings justice against their sin mm-hmm. and leaves them, in, leaves them in it. And when I say that God doesn't act in, in the same way uh, to both sides, you see clearly that the cause of salvation in election lies entirely and completely in God. He gets all the glory. And it is a wonderful display of his grace. On the other hand, the Bible makes clear that for the condemnation of a sinner, the cause of that is always attributed entirely to the sinner. 
So God is not responsible for their sin and he is not the cause of their sin. And yet ultimately, God will be glorified, not in his grace, but in his justice that he brings against this sin. So all things work according to God's glory. Um, on the one hand, though, an election, and, and this is just a really, I mean, to, to really boil it down, you can think about it this way. In salvation, all the responsibility, all the glory goes to God. All of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely all of it. And that's what the doctrine of election makes clear. That is why uh, there is no room for boasting in the gospel. Absolutely no room. Paul makes that abundantly clear. And on the flip side, in judgment, the Bible is clear on this, that all responsibility belongs to the sinner. Nobody faces judgment because solely for the fact that God determined that they would face judgment. Judgment is brought against sin. And the responsibility for that sin is always inside the person. God is not the, the cause, the immediate cause of sin in that person's heart. Now, at the same time, again, we uphold the idea that God is ultimately sovereign over all things. Like a, a picture that's coming to my mind right now is like Matthew 7. You think about the narrow and the broad road. Um, mm-hmm. Like we are all born because of our sin nature, walking this broad road to destruction, to hell. Read Matthew 7. You'll get, you'll get the picture. So imagine a huge road and the whole course of humanity and everyone who's ever lived is walking this road, which is broad to destruction, to hell by our own volition. And what we're saying in unconditional election is God, just because of his good pleasure, plucks you out from, from walking with everyone else, plucks you out of it and puts you on the narrow road to follow Christ with giving you a new heart, giving you his spirit, giving you new eyes, new ears to then follow him and obey him and have everlasting life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think like a lot of the pushback on this is just like with the idea that we deserve heaven, I think right. is where a lot of it comes from is like people think we're mostly good yeah, and we're not. And they think that God is just like stiff arming people who are trying to find him and trying to follow Christ and trying to obey his commands. But the reality is no one is coming yeah. and unless God sovereignly elects them. Yeah. And that's right. And that's, that's what the Bible makes clear and we talked about in total depravity you know romans 3 paul early in romans paul who has the same doctrine of election always places his, his doctrine of sin is really clear that it is it is coming from the sinner yeah and, and he I, says you know just for this example none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks god all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good not even one And that's Paul quoting from the Old Testament. He also in Romans 1, and we talked about this too, but it says that God has made himself known to his creation. And in our sin nature, what we've done is that we have, we we know things about God. And yet what we do with that knowledge is that we suppress it in unrighteousness. And and we we exchange the glory of God for lesser things. And and, and we, we walk in sin and we don't seek the true God, but we set up gods in our own images. Yeah, and you can see how... The, this TULIP acronym and the doctrines of grace, how they build upon one another and how they can stand alone, but really it's together that they form this, um, this doctrine of salvation. And so if we affirm total depravity and that humans can't seek God and choose him, then in the logical like um, way of thinking of this, th- then there is no way in which they can choose God. 
the, the, their salvation must be unconditional. Um, and by unconditional, we just mean the condition on which their salvation is based is on God's good pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's helpful. Now, I think another reminder with this too, and we should get back to, to Romans 8 too after you say this. Yeah, I know. I'm just going <coughs> to mention this quickly. Okay. Um, Romans 9. God was, God was not obligated upon the sin of man and all of humanity to elect to salvation anyone. God was not obligated to bring about an amazing redemptive plan uh, for the salvation of an uncountable multitude. Now, I'm going to quote I'm going to quote a passage from 2nd Peter and I mean here's a reality. God God could have treated us like the devil and his angels. Mm. And I'm going to read this passage from 2nd Peter 2:4. It says for if God did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. If he and he goes on, I mean he, he goes Peter's basically building a, a doctrine of of uh of judgment that God has brought in, in, in the past in Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and he's really in the context promising that God's going to bring an ultimate judgment one day. But if you think about the way that God acted towards the angels and, and Satan who rebelled against him, God did not set in motion a plan for their redemption. He didn't do that. And God is perfectly just in that action. But for human beings, God set apart immediately and promised the gospel uh, and, and promised a savior immediately in Genesis after the fall for the redemption of people. And now that was entirely by God's grace and his mercy. So as we go back to, back to Romans 9, we're going to look at Paul's response to this. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And now he's going to go back, and this is what Paul usually does. He, he, he builds a doctrine, and then he goes back to the Old Testament to uh, find it there and affirm it. He says, for he says to Moses, and he's going to quote from Exodus 33, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, and this is Paul again, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So what is Paul basically saying there? Well, in, in the context, in Exodus 33, the Israelites have just made a golden calf. Uh, they have they've sinned against God, and God is rightfully could enter into his judgment with them, but he declares to Moses at this time that God is free to have mercy on whom he will have mercy and compassion on whom I, on whom he will have compassion. And Paul's point from that, it, it, what he says in verse 16 is that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So God is, is free with sinful creatures to be merciful to some, which, which he's been to many, and that's not in, that there's no injustice there. And as we continue in this text, uh, to harden and bring judgment against others as well. God, God is free to do that, and there is no injustice on God's part in that. So Paul continues in verse 17, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, and now he's quoting from Exodus again, going back to an Old Testament narrative. The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, if you think about this entire Exodus narrative, you have the Israelites, and you have the Egyptians, uh, you have Moses, and you have Pharaoh, and God showed a tremendous mercy to the Israelites, and he redeemed them and delivered them through Moses. And 
yet in that account, it describes God's actions toward Pharaoh in a different way. And Paul's saying there is, there's no injustice in that, just like there's no injustice in, in, in our doctrine of election. Mm-hmm. It says that God raised up Pharaoh for the purpose that he might show his power in him and that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God judged Pharaoh. God brought judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And the ultimate result of that was glory to God's name in all of the earth. Now, and, and we're going to, and you know, Paul says that he hardens whomever he wills as well. That's, that's a phrase that Paul uses. And in, in, in the Exodus account, it, it talks of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. It also talks of God, or of Pharaoh hardening his own heart. So God is free to save people and to, to not save others, mm-hmm. to bring judgment on others, all of whom are sinful. And an example, a historical exa- example of God doing that, which Paul is saying, is that in the Exodus, God uh, brought redemption and, and salvation to the Israelites, and he brought judgment to Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. And both of those things ultimately resulted in the glory of God. James, you want to add anything to that at all? I mean, I think just the next question of what Paul says, um, if we go yeah, on in and verse, I, verse just, 19. Just to bring clarity to that too, and this next question is going to do it, but this, this doesn't yeah. mean that Pharaoh's off the hook. Yeah, like, exactly. like God, God raised up Pharaoh, um, and, and, and Pharaoh was not manipulated. He wasn't coerced. It says that he hardened his own heart. Yeah. There was nothing that he wanted more to oppose God and then to put himself in the place of God. And God allowed him to, to basically attempt to do what he wanted, and the end result was that God brought judgment on Pharaoh and glory to his name in all of the earth. Yeah, 10 times. <laughs> 10 times he, he offered it. Moses goes and, and, and gives him a chance to let him go. And he, whatever, keep, keeps him in captivity. Um, and I think that part is so important too. Just what you said. I mean, we're going to get into it in verse 19. So, but yeah. Pharaoh is responsible and and. Yet God gave him a chance. And, and you see that in Romans 1 and 2 as well. Like no one is without excuse. Yeah. Because we can clearly see God through creation, through our consciousness, through morality. Uh, we know that a creator God exists. Um, and so there is no excuse for the unbeliever. Yeah. I think of even in the Gospels, you know, Jesus in his interaction with the Pharisees, there's multiple times he says like... Uh, you know, he says to the Pharisees in John eight, he says, "You were not, you're not willing to follow me, uh, because you're of, you're of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's will." Like, like there, the cause is not in Jesus. It's not the fault of the gospel. Uh, it's it's not God's fault, or it's not God's God's not the responsible party for people rejecting the gospel, mm-hmm. for people unbelieving. God doesn't create unbelief in the heart of a person. God doesn't create sin in the heart of a person. Uh, and yet, yeah. There is a, a the the responsibility, um, is given to the person for rejecting the gospel and rejecting God, mm-hmm. and and for for sinning, and that's we are we are always holding up that, and that's really the heart of Paul's next objection. So Paul's next objection, and you know he's just assuming this is the response to his his teaching on this. Verse nineteen, he says, "You will say to me then, why does he still find fault?" For who can resist his will? And that's the question. That's a great question because we, we say that God is sovereign. We say that God saves some. He doesn't, he's, he doesn't save others. He's fully in control. And we say that he is fully in control. So the objection that's put to Paul by himself is if you say that God is sovereign over all things, 
then how can he find fault with the sinner? Mm-hmm. Does the sinner then have an excuse for his rejection of God? For who can resist the will of God? And that's the question. Yeah. Now, we'll look at what, what Paul answers uh, to this. Verse 20. Great answer. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? There you go. There's your answer. <laughs> yeah. Who are you, O man, to answer to God? And it's like, a, it's like I talked about earlier. You know, as human beings, we stand, first of all, we are created by God. He is the creator and we are the creature. There is a massive distinction there. Also, like I said earlier, we have limited wisdom, mm-hmm. limited knowledge, a limited perspective. We are not in a position to bring suit against God. Mm-hmm. We are not a condi- in a position to argue against the way that God has done things. We are, we are not in a position to accuse God. For we don't have the wisdom, we don't have the knowledge, and we don't have the perspective of God. Now, Paul goes on. He has another hypothetical question. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made like made, made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So there's Paul's Paul's response to that. I'd encourage you also you to just go and to go, to go and continue to read this. Yeah. To think about these things. Um it, it is ultimately a good question. Uh who who then can who can resist his will? How does he find fault? But as we've as, we, as we said earlier, the Bible is abundantly clear on this issue uh that God is not uh responsible for sin he's not responsible for our sin we bear the responsibility for our sin we bear responsibility for rejecting the gospel for rejecting god for walking in unrighteousness we bear the um responsibility for refusing to repent of our sin we bear the responsibility for refusing to acknowledge god as the lord of our lives uh there there is no there, there is no excuse so to speak. James, you have anything you want to add to that at all? <clears throat> I guess, well, it's just a sobering reality. <laughs> like when, when Paul asked that question, is there injustice on God's part? And then it's like, who are you, oh man, to answer back to God and to question him? And the question that Paul poses isn't wrong. Yep. Like it, it's a real question that you look at these things that Paul is saying and that the Bible shows and the logical outworking of that is, well, how is that fair? How is God just in that? Um, and he is, and we know that to be true because of the rest of the, the Bible. Um, but how that reconciles in our brains, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, 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 and that's okay. Cause I'm not God. Yep. I'm and, finite. When, when Paul says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God, it's not as if um, he is condemning the idea of struggling with this yeah. doctrine. Yeah, it's kind of And it, it's, not, it's not as if he's uh, condemning, condemning the idea of, of putting to God any sort of question, because that's just, that's just not true. We see all throughout the Bible, um, in the Psalms, 
you know, Habakkuk is another really good example. People questioning sincerely God's wisdom in the way that he's doing things. And I think, I think an important thing to note about that, about that though, is the heart posture that's behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, certainly God's people are like in the Psalms are, are questioning God. Why, you know, a lot of times it's, why am I in this situation of evil and suffering that's happening to me? Why, why is this your will for me? Certainly this can't be right. And at the end of the day, in so many of the Psalms, the, the result is, you know, but, but I trust in your goodness. Yeah. I trust in your care for me. I trust in your wisdom. I will not put myself in your place. Uh, I am not going to claim that I know better, uh, but rather I'm going to humbly submit to you and to your word. Mm-hmm. And I think that a questioning posture like that is something, first of all, that God can handle from us. Yeah. God wants our, can handle our honesty. Uh, he can handle our, sometimes our confusion, uh, sometimes our, our difficulty in understanding. Uh, but certainly it should come from a humble uh, heart. Instead, you know, and I think what Paul is really getting at is there is a way to question God here that comes from an unbelieving and an accusatory heart yeah. and uh, from a place of thinking that we know better than God. And and that is, is the idea that we really need to stand against. Mm-hmm. So those are the objections that Paul really puts forth. Um, and, and, and ultimately, another reality of this too, and I think Paul really makes this uh, in his in his illustration of the potter and the clay, Paul makes this argument that um, ultimately all things are going to work to the glory of God. All things. Now, certainly God is glorified wonderfully in his grace and in his mercy and his love, but those are, those are not the only attributes that God possesses. Uh, and those attributes are actually in tandem working together with God's righteousness, God's holiness, and God's justice. Mm-hmm. So on the final day, God is going to be glorified for the salvation, for the immense and wonderful and beautiful, perfect salvation that he's brought to his people by his grace. And at the same time, God is going to be glorified magnificently for his perfect righteousness, his perfect goodness, and his perfect justice against all sin and wickedness. Yeah, and I think that that hits on just one of the hearts of this problem is like I imagine some of the listeners are like, okay, so God unconditionally elects um, people to salvation. Why doesn't he just elect everyone? Right. And, and what you're kind of getting at here is like God gets glory in the same way in electing people in exercising his justice in condemning people. Yep. And that probably doesn't sit as yeah, well. Yeah, that with can you. rub us. Yeah. But the heart of that is that we don't understand the holiness and righteousness of God. Yeah. That's a big part of it. God is not like us. Yeah. Um, God, God, God can't be in the presence of any sin. Yeah. And that's, and, and part of that, like, that's why the gospel to us, even is sometimes it's, it's offensive because not, not that God needed the atonement to love us. God, God, the atonement happened because God already loves us. Yeah. But God did not look over our sins. He didn't just say, these are no big deal, but actually he, he took them on himself in the, in the person of Jesus who actually bore the wrath of, of sin. So, so in that sense, we like, even for, even for people who are saved, God, God did not look over their sin. All sin meets justice. Mm-hmm. All sin, uh, 
comes to the bar of God's justice. Yeah, and, and there's only two destinations for that sin. Yep. It's only going to get paid for in two different ways. First, it could be paid for on the cross of Christ. Your sins can be fully paid for by the ransom of Christ on the cross. God will justly put them on him and pay for them, and Christ will drink that cup for you and satisfy God's wrath on your behalf. Or the other option is your sins will be paid for by yourself in eternity in just condemnation in hell. Yep. But but in that entire scheme, there's no injustice. Yeah. Every sin is paid for, and God is <clears throat> is free to be merciful to whom he will be merciful mm-hmm. uh, and to bring justice against whom he will bring justice against. Yeah. Uh, the, these are heavy. Like, these yeah. are heavy topics. And so, like, I'm just thinking, like, yeah, just saying it, handling it gently, too. Like, yeah. Yeah, I've got a, and, and I included this, and maybe we'll get to some more application here. There, there's a few, um, you know, I, I just want to give some weight to some more passages, too. Yeah. Because there, there's some passages in the Bible that that, cur- that just t- keep us from, like, oversteering on this sometimes. Yeah. One example is Ezekiel 33. I think it's verse 11. I don't have it on hand here. Um, but what it says is that <clears throat> it is God speaking through Ezekiel. He says, I, he says, I have no delight in the death of the wicked. But, um, James, are you looking it up? Maybe you have it. It says, I have no delight in the death of, of the wicked, but wish that yeah, so the it, wicked re- would repent. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Yeah. So, so God is, God is not, God, God isn't arbitrary in his justice. He's not, he's not bringing wicked or bringing justice just for the sake of bringing justice and condemning the wicked just for the sake of condemning the wicked. God doesn't, it's not an arbitrary one. And, and as that passage says, God doesn't take delight in the death of the wicked and God delights in repentance. And as far as he is revealed to us in his word, God calls all people to repentance. Mm-hmm. And as we see in Luke 15, God God and the angels in heaven celebrate the repentance of a single sinner. And, and that is what God has revealed to us in his, in his revealed will. But ultimately, God being sovereign over all things um, doesn't bring about the salvation of every person. So God at the same time can say, I don't delight in the death of the wicked, but him being in control of all things, he has not brought about the salvation of all people. And we have to reconcile those two truths. And that, that can be a bit mysterious for us, but we hold them up both as true. Mm-hmm. And similarly, and I know, I think this is another objection that, that commonly gets thrown against Calvinism is, you know, what do we make of uh, evangelism and prayer? Mm-hmm. If, if God has determined beforehand that all people will be, or that his elect people will be saved, then what, what do we evangelize for? What do we pray for? And it's important to understand how the Bible uses this doctrine because the Bible doesn't use this doctrine as an excuse to get off the hook. Actually, immediately immediately following Romans 9 and Romans 10, Paul actually, like, he gives this a doctrine of, of evangelism, basically. Uh, he says, how is anyone to be saved unless they've heard? And how are they to hear unless someone goes to them? So there's a responsibility for people. Uh, even you think about the Great Commission, Jesus commands his disciples to go and go to all nations and teach people about Jesus. Go to all nations. That that is <clears throat> that is the means that God is going to use to bring about the salvation of the elect. Yeah, because so the objection that that uh, Hank is drawing out here is 
So if we say that everyone's unconditionally elected, God will bring about their salvation, then why do we even evangelize? Won't it come to pass? But the point Hank is making is not only does God ordain the ends, but God also ordains the means to the ends, which is us. Um, And that applies to both evangelism and prayer. We are the means to that end. God uses us um, and other believers to share the gospel um, with everyone, Mm -hmm. uh, with unbelievers, to bring about the salvation of the elect. Um, And our our prayers as well. God uses our prayers to bring about the means of the ends. And as we said, God... God does not deal with people as something less than morally responsible mm-hmm. and volitional creatures. So God uses means to accomplish these purposes. He doesn't manipulate. He doesn't coerce. Uh, but he acts through the through the volition of creatures as yep. well. He exercises his sovereignty ultimately through uh, the, the the will also of, pe- of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think about, like, if, if you just read Paul, and Paul's, pretty well known i mean we we say this uh we say that this doctrine of election is found all throughout scripture and i think we highlighted that a bit uh but it it is especially prominent in paul paul really lays out um this doctrine somewhat but but notice you need you need to also understand how it affects paul how does paul view it uh paul earlier in romans verse verse um or chapter one verse 14 well verse one paul says that he is set apart for the gospel of god that, that is his purpose. Uh, and in verse 14, he says, I am under, under obligation to preach the gospel to all people. To preach the gospel to all people. Trusting that God is going to save people through that. So, so Paul sees that we, we, are, we are called, the church is called to the task of preaching the gospel to all people. You know, in, even in, uh, I'm thinking about 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to go there and just read it quick because I think it's really helpful. I'm going to start in verse 8. Uh, this is 2 Timothy 2.8. It says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. And then he says, But the word of God is not bound. He says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of, of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And if you think about Paul's life, the things that, if you read the book of Acts, you read about all the things that Paul endured, all the things that he went through for the sake of preaching the gospel. He says he endured it all for the sake of the elect. So rather than election being a hindrance to our doctrine of evangelism, Mm -hmm. Paul sees it as a fuel stoking the fire of evangelism. We know that as we go and evangelize, as we share the gospel with people, as churches are planted and the gospel is preached, we know that God is going to bring salvation. Yeah, and, and what a freedom that brings uh, in our evangelism mm-hmm. is no longer is it dependent on how well I can present the gospel or, <clears throat> or how how much I can convince this person uh, to believe in, in the gospel and, and follow Christ. No, it, it's, it's dependent on God. All I'm called to do is to be faithful, to preach the good news, and God is going to do the saving. And there are lost sheep out there and we are called to find them. Yeah. And, and what a freedom and fuel, like you said, to our evangelism. Now, what we're not saying is that Hank and I are these awesome evangelists that are just so fired up to go out. Um, 
unfortunately, we're still often sheepish, even though we affirm this doctrine. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, it should fuel us and give us excitement and a freedom in preaching the good news to the ends of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. And as, as we look out um, at a world, we see sin, evil, we see the hardness of human hearts. But ultimately, we're, we, we trust and know that God is working things for good and is going to bring about the salvation of people, mm-hmm. that he overcomes the hardness of the human heart. Yeah. Uh, and that is a great cause for comfort and for joy and should drive our evangelism and not hinder it. It should also drive our, our prayer. And I mean, just to think about, oh, I should look up, you should look up Spurgeon's um, Arminian prayer. That's a good example. Um, Dude, I mean, even just but even when la- the every last time, every time right, we pray, <laughs> sorry, every time we pray, we are assuming that God is sovereign and we are assuming that God is in control. We pray because we believe that God actually exercises his sovereignty in the world mm-hmm. and has the power to change things and, and, and is ultimately in control. We don't pray to a God that we believe is impotent. We pray to a God that we believe is in control of all things. And, and that should fuel our prayers and that should really fuel our evangelism as well. Okay, what, what am I looking for here? Here, I'll, I'll find it quick. Okay. Um, the other thing I'm just going to note as well, uh, I want to talk a, a bit about, and maybe this will be the last kind of towards the end, but <clears throat> the question, another question is what does the role of this doctrine of election play in the church? Mm-hmm. What does it play in, in the preaching of the church and all of this? And that is a good question. It's a very valid one. And when we think about that, um, there's certainly a distinction that we make between some doctrines and others. Uh, You know, Paul talks about like feeding newer believers with spiritual milk and not solid food. So like certainly this, this doctrine is not to be held back in the church. It's not to be not preached. And I think that's so often what happens. It's controversial. And so people really just shy away from it. But at the same time, we need to use discretion and wisdom when handling these doctrines and with, and, 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 and in just dealing with people and, and teaching it to them. And I think the Westminster Confession gives a good, uh, gives a good statement about this. And I'm just going to read it quick. It says that the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. That men attending the will of God revealed in his word and ye- yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation, that's their call, being called to God, we'll talk about that soon as well, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. So with that with that in mind, just thinking about the role that this plays, we have to be wise and careful in how we talk about this yeah, and how we use it. Is there, you know, with, with a with a brand new believer, are we going to dump this on them right away? No. Probably not. Uh, and we're going to be careful and wise and slow to continue to uh, bring this to them, help them to understand it, and also help them to walk through the wrestle of, of understanding this, mm-hmm. which takes time. You know, uh, and, and certainly this is this has been the case throughout throughout history that that you can find Calvinists that are very um, arrogant. And 
<clears throat> that are very uncareful and unloving in how they wield these doctrines. Mm-hmm. And that is absolutely antithetical to the message of the doctrines of grace, which should produce in us great humility, yeah. um, great love for God, and great care for people as well. Not to, to smash people over the head with Bible verses or logic, but to help people understand a sometimes mysterious but glorious God. Yeah, and that's the ultimate I mean, there it. God has orchestrated His salvation in a certain way to, for certain purposes, and so we can look at the doctrine of unconditional election and think about how it humbles man, um, and it should in our life. And so, if we are um, boasting around with this doctrine, um, saying that we are elect or whatever, if, if people have done that in the past, that that's really unfortunate. But it should really humble us. Um, and like give us freedom and ultimately over all things, it gives God all the glory. And that's, that's what we're about on this podcast. And that's what we're about in our lives. And we want our theology to turn into doxology. And what I mean by that is our theology should lead to praise of God. Um, and I truly believe that these doctrines and the doctrine of unconditional election, especially does do that for the believer. Mm-hmm. Amen. Well, thanks for that, James. I am going to add one <laughs> final thing and we'll close. Okay. Um, last, the last episode I ended by quoting Charles Spurgeon. I'm going to do that again. Uh, he has, uh, in a sermon, in a sermon he wrote a long time ago, he, um, uh, he, he wrote what he called an Arminian prayer. And Arminian being a person who is, is opposed to Calvinism, um, mm-hmm. a whole different system of, of salvation, all of this. I encourage you actually to read about it and yeah. you can weigh uh, what we've said uh, and the Calvinist reform view against uh, some of the Arminian views. But, but he says this and I really, and I really uh, appreciate it. He says, well, I'll start a little bit, a little bit ahead, but he says an Arminian on his knees would pray desperately like a Calvinist. He cannot pray about free will. There is no room for it. Room for it. Fancy him praying like this. <clears throat> and now here, here's his, you know, summary of an Ar- of, of an Arminian prayer that would be consistent with that type of theology. He says, "Lord, I thank thee that I am not like those poor presumptuous Calvinists. I was born with a glorious free will. I was born with power by which I can turn to thee of myself. I have improved my grace." If everybody had done the same with their grace that I have, they might all have been saved. Lord, I know thou dost not make us willing if we are not willing ourselves. Thou givest grace to everybody. Some do not improve it, but I do. There are many that will go to hell as much bought by the blood of Christ as I was. They had as much of the Holy Ghost given to them. They had as good a chance and as were and were as much blessed as I am. It was not thy grace that made us to differ. I know it a great deal. Still, I turned the point. I made use of what was given me and others did not. And that is the biggest difference between me and them. Now, that may be a bit, um, that may be a bit like like an Arminian theologian wouldn't read that and say, hey, this is consistent with what we believe. They wouldn't, you know, talk like that and certainly we we know arminians that are that love god uh, and that love people really well but i think what spurgeon is really getting at is the logical outworking of the arminian system of theology uh 
which places the ultimate decision of salvation in the person and not in God. Mm. And well, what is clear in this is that that pulls away and detracts from the glory of God and it exalts the person. Mm. And at the heart of, like you said, James, at the heart of these doctrines is the glory of God and the grace of God. Mm-hmm. And that is what, like you said, we are all about. And that's how we want to live. And that's how we want to talk about God. Yeah. And so th- to summarize just the a- the last applications that we did is these doctrines should be humbling you. These doctrines should spur you on to fearless evangelism. These doctrines should give you confidence in the power of your prayers. Uh, these doctrines should give you an assurance of your salvation. And these doctrines should bring you to the praise of God. Amen. Amen. Well, hopefully we've uh, been helpful in this. Yeah. Uh, we try to deal with some objections. We obviously can't co- cover them all. There's so much to cover. And with that, again, I want to say this again. I encourage you guys, first of all, read your Bible. Ask yourself these questions. Yeah. Also, um, go and look at Arminian theology. Go go and go and and look at different systems and what they might say, and uh, compare with the Calvinist reform view. Yeah. There's helpful charts too. If you just look up online, yep. have them right next to each other. Yep. But most of all, don't accept just what we say or what someone else says without going and studying your Bible yeah. and reading it on your own. And our prayer is that you would continue to do that. So we thank you guys for tuning in. Um, we pray that you would continue to join us. Uh, we apologize that this again went longer than we were expecting it to. Uh, but we, we pray and hope that as you continue with us, that you would be blessed by this, um, and would, would find some clarity and some solidity in a world of confusion and a world of what seems like disorder and anxiety. Mm-hmm. So with that, we're going to let you go. We pray that you have a, a good rest of your day, wherever you're at. Thanks. Thanks.